If you have a Bible with you, then please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we will read from the 40th verse. Let me um, set the broader scene and the more immediate scene. Perhaps the most remarkable statements regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this fallen world are found in the opening words of the Gospel of John, where we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then these remarkable words in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word, who was with God and who was God, and the Word became flesh took to himself our nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And what we will discover tonight is that for the first time, the Son of God in our flesh exposed himself to something that he had never known from times eternal. He exposed himself to the experience of temptation as the Son of God from times eternal, as the second person of the Godhead, he had never known in any way what it was to be tempted to sin. But now as he comes into the arena of this world and as he takes to himself the frailty of our flesh, addicted, as John Calvin puts it so strikingly, addicted to so many wretchednesses, he exposes himself to the experience of temptation. And here in Matthew 27, we find ourselves in the midst of the passion narrative. Our Lord Jesus Christ has, in Luke's account, described the whole course of his life as the time of my trials or temptations, as he viewed the whole panorama or landscape of his life from from womb to approaching cross, he can say, this whole expanse of my life has been an unrelenting, unremitting experience of trial and temptation. And right at the last, Satan refuses to relent, and he seeks even unto the last moment, as it were, to seduce our Savior away from the mission entrusted to him in times eternal by his Father, and seeks to tempt him to avoid the cross. We'll read from verse 32 of Matthew 27. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. 
Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The Apostle Paul tells us in his second letter to the Corinthians that though he, the Son of God, was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. And part of the poverty that our Lord Jesus Christ embraced to himself was the poverty of our frail humanity, of our temptable humanity, because he had come into the world as that better than Adam, the Son of God who would stand, who would not collapse under trial and temptation, but who would offer up to God in the place of believing sinners that righteousness, that faithfulness, that obedience, and that satisfaction for sin that not one of us could offer to God, but to offer that satisfaction for sin and to provide us with that obedience of righteousness that we so lacked. He needed to take to himself frail flesh, humanity that was temptable. And what we find here in the, in the larger expanse of Matthew's narrative, we have found our Lord Jesus Christ earlier in chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he has agonized as the crushing weight of the reality that he had known intellectually from times eternal, but not existentially or experientially in his life. But now the shadow of the cross was beginning to penetrate his human soul. And our Lord cries out, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup, this cup of judgment and, and wrath pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And in Matthew's narrative, we find our Lord Jesus Christ agonizing in the garden. And the three disciples that he has brought with him to support and succor him in his time of greatest need, for in his humanity, he needed support. That's why when they failed, an angel from heaven has to come and support 
the frailty of the Lord's humanity as he faces this ultimate climax. And as our Lord sees the disciples sleeping, he says to them, you may remember, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And these are almost the last words our Lord Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples prior to his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. He is telling his disciples that temptation is there present to engulf them, to seduce them, and to overwhelm them. He wants them to understand that Satan will be relentless in his determination to bring disgrace and dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ through the failures and the sins of his people because Satan is relatively uninterested, relatively uninterested in the people of God. His great serpentine desire is to do public despite to the Son of God. And so Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptations. And here in the passage before us, we find our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he is about to expire, even as he is about to experience the cumulative weight, the unimaginable cumulative weight of the righteous judgment of God on human sin bearing down upon him, even then Satan is relentless in his temptation to get Jesus to abandon his mission and to turn aside from paying the unimaginable price that he would have to pay. And what I want you to notice is that even as our Lord hangs on the cross, he hears this temptation. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, Matthew would expect us immediately to stop and to say, where have I heard that before? And of course, as Jesus begins his public ministry, as Matthew records it for us in the fourth chapter of his gospel, we find our Lord Jesus Christ as he is about to embark on his public mission to be the Savior of the world, having been baptized by John in the Jordan publicly inaugurated into his covenantal destiny as the redeemer of sinners. We find Satan coming to him. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And in that inhospitable place where there was nothing to succor him, Satan comes, and you remember one of the temptations, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. temple. I think Matthew's expecting us to see that the whole public life of our Lord Jesus Christ is bookended by these two 
serpentine attempts of the devil to turn Jesus aside from the costly sacrifice that would not only bring redemption for sinners but destruction for the devil himself. Here he is on the cross just as he was in the wilderness alone and the temptation unrelentingly comes again. If you are the Son of God, if you're all you claim to be, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. What I'd like us to do this evening is simply, very simply, to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ is the prototypical believer. He is the perfect man of faith. He is the prototypical, obedient, faithful Son of God. And what the Holy Spirit first accomplished in the human nature of Christ, he comes to replicate in the lives of the people of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit etched a sanctified template in the life of the Lord Jesus. We're told, you remember in Luke's Gospel, how he grew in wisdom and in favor and with God and with man. Or how in Hebrews 5, we are told, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. And it's very striking that our Lord Jesus Christ as he lives out his divine mission and calling to be the redeemer of sinners, does so in self-conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. In the first servant song in Isaiah, chapter 42, it's very striking. The Lord says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen. I will put my Spirit upon him. And at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes in a divinely inaugurated way to usher Jesus into his Spirit-anointed, Spirit-dependent ministry and mission as the Redeemer of the people of God. And the Holy Spirit comes to every believer, and he comes to overlay what Calvin calls his ministry of replication. He comes to overlay the template of the Savior's humanity upon our humanity. And part of that template involves temptation, the experience of temptation, and how our Savior faced temptation, resisted temptation, refused temptation. And I want simply to just highlight a number of very simple basic things that will remind us that, number one, that temptation is a reality that we will never escape from till we breathe our last breath in this life. And secondly, that no matter how pressing, how powerful the temptation, we have by the presence and power of the indwelling Spirit of Jesus Christ, one who is able to help us in all the times of our need. So let me just mention a number. If I told you the number, your hearts would fail you, but 
This is a church that doesn't have a clock, so I better take my watch off. Eric Alexander once said to me, he said, my son Ronald once said to me, Dad, why do you take off your watch? You never look at it. Um, It's not a watch you need, it's a calendar. Um, Eric never preached that long, actually. Number one, what can we learn from this? Number one, temptation to sin is an ever-present reality for even the most faithful of Christians. The Lord Jesus Christ was not excused the experience of temptation. And if the Son of God, the sinless Son, the obedient Son, the ever-faithful Son, if He was not excused the experience of temptation, then neither will you and neither will I. Now that's so basic, isn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's a biblical commonplace. But so often we can become discomfited and distressed by the sheer fact of temptation. But the Holy Son of God experienced temptation. It belongs to the reality of the life of faith in a fallen world. You cannot escape it. Reckon with it. Secondly, temptation is most powerful when we are most vulnerable. And we see that, don't we, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in the temptation in the wilderness. He is without food, without water for 40 days. He must have been at the edge and beyond the edge of human extremity. And Satan then comes at his most vulnerable, physically, mentally, emotionally, as well as spiritually. Satan comes when we are at our most vulnerable. And his temptations, therefore, can become the more powerful. There are temptations we could brush aside without a second thought when life is well and sweet and happy and coordinated. But when your life is falling apart and those same temptations come, you discover how vulnerable you are. But you know, sometimes we can be vulnerable and not know it. That's why I think the example of David's adultery with Bathsheba is, is given in such graphic, unwholesome detail in the second book of Samuel. Remember how that second book of Samuel, chapter 11, begins at the time where, when kings go out to war. What was David doing? Was he going? No, he wasn't. He was languishing indolently, wandering about the balustrade of his palace. He didn't know how vulnerable he was. If you had said to David, David, in a few minutes' time, you're going to bring lasting disgrace and dishonor to Yahweh, the covenant Savior and King. You're going to bring disgrace to your wife, your children, your church. He would have had your head. He was vulnerable. And the vulnerability was the result of his indolence, his passivity. Things had gone so well, he had stopped watching and praying. And not only can indolence and passivity leave us vulnerable, pride can leave us vulnerable. Remember Peter? 
And again, in such graphic, unwholesome detail, we're told about Peter who says, Lord, they might all desert you, but I'll never desert you. You can count on me in the extremity of life. I'll be there. And a little girl says to him, you're one of Jesus' disciples, not me. Oh, yes, you are, not me. Then someone else says it, and with curses, with curses. And you think, oh, what on earth happened to Peter? One moment he's, though I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll never cave into temptation to desert you. He'd become proud. He thought more highly of himself than he ought to have done. He didn't realize how vulnerable and and weak he really was. He, He flattered himself. He loved the Savior more than he did. He flattered himself that he loved the Savior more than other people did. Temptation is most is most powerful when we are most vulnerable. And our vulnerabilities are as many as there are individuals here tonight and more besides. And so Jesus says, watch and pray. I remember many years ago an older minister saying to me, I can still remember it so vividly, he says, Ian, never think your congregation are as far along as you think they are. I said, oh, that's, that's good to remember. And then he said this, and never think you are as far along as you think you are. And I thought, oh my, I better take that more to heart than the other. Temptation is most powerful when we are most vulnerable. Therefore, watch and pray. Watch and pray every day. Better people than you and better people than me have fallen into the vilest temptations. That's why you have the man after God's own heart, David, placarded to us. You ever read Second Samuel 11 and the verses that follow and say, Lord, did we need to know in such detail the egregiousness of David's sin? Yes, you do. To understand that the most privileged and blessed and favored of men and women can sink to such depths because they have left off watching and praying. Thirdly, temptation often has a predictable pathology. That is to say, it's often reasonable. Here is our Lord Jesus. He's suffering unimaginably on the cross. We sometimes, and and rightly, play down the physicality of the Savior's suffering. Well, that's very Roman. But crucifixion was unimaginably cruel The suffering was just beyond explication. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to suffer? Which believer in their right mind wants to suffer? If they do, they're not in their right mind. And Satan comes and says, you you, you don't want to suffer. Just come down from the cross. You you can end the suffering. Temptation often comes and offers us immediate relief or gratification. 
That's why Genesis 3 is such a pivotal chapter. Get Genesis 3 wrong. In fact, get Genesis 1 through 3 wrong. Get the whole Bible wrong. But Satan comes mysteriously and says, you know, if you stop listening to God and start listening to me, you will be like God. Instant gratification, instant deification. If you just listen to me and just forget what God has said, then I can offer you so much. And that's so often the pathology of temptation. It can come with a reasonableness. You know, Satan's dark and ugly temptations are not the ones that most Christians succumb to. It's more reasonable, sweetly worded temptations to self-assertion, to self-aggrandizement, numerous things. Watch and pray. We need to be alert to the reasonableness of the devil's temptations. We need to have our spiritual antennae alerted to often the sweet reasonableness. You know, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he doesn't come belligerently. He comes, did God really say? He doesn't come out and say, well, that's what God said, but ignore that. He he says, did God really say? Fourthly, temptation has an ultimate trajectory. Now, I touched on this in the introduction, but let me simply highlight it again. Your downfall and my downfall is not the tempter's ultimate concern. You actually don't really matter to the devil. His ultimate concern is is not even the church's gospel witness. That's involved. His ultimate concern is to have the name of Jesus Christ blasphemed among the Gentiles, as Paul puts it in Romans 2, 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the sins of you Jews or you Gentiles. This is what must be at the forefront of our minds and hearts when temptation comes calling in all its various guises. The ultimate aim of the evil one is to bring public disgrace to the Savior who shed his blood for me, who embraced my frail flesh to himself. That's why the greatest antidote to temptation is to sink your life into the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. John Owen has a a quite fabulous passage. Um, If you're interested and you have the works of Owen, uh, volume 1, page 460 into 461. I I don't know all of Owen like that, but I do know this passage. And he says something like this. He says, Give contemplation of the glory of Christ your highest endeavor, and virtue will proceed from him 
to minister to your decays and banish your disobediences. So, a Christian comes who's struggling with obedience. They're being tempted this way and that way and whatever way. And they come and and they say, I'm struggling here and I'm struggling to give the Lord the obedience that I know he looks for and and seeks from my heart. Can you help me? And, and, And you bring them in and you sit them down and make them a nice cup of tea. That's what you English people do, isn't it? We give them tea, but we give them cakes as well up in Scotland. And, and, and you sit them down and you say to them, let me tell you about the glory of the Son of God. And they look at you and they say, well, th- thank you. Could we do that tomorrow? I really need your help. You say to them, this is the greatest help I can give you. Think of how our Lord Jesus did that. The disciples are beside themselves with anxiety and fear. Their hearts are troubled. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus has told them that he's leaving them. And they're beside themselves. They, they think, life without Jesus? Well, what? How do you compute that? Now, what does Jesus do in John 14 through 17? He says to them, your hearts are troubled. You're beside them yourselves with anxiety and fear. Let me tell you about the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. That was Jesus' antidote. He slowly unpacks. Sinclair Ferguson has a great series on this. The, the Lord just unpacks the interrelatedness, the, the perichoretic, the interconnectedness of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. John Calvin has a, oh, just one of those magnificent passages in the Institutes. Well, they're all pretty magnificent. But in, in book one, um, book one, thirteen, seventeen, he says, these words of Gregory Nazianzen vastly delight me. Now, when Calvin says he's vastly delighted about anything, you stop. He was a tightly buttoned Frenchman. You know, he, he wasn't your usual French, full of Gallic flair. Calvin was, was pretty self-contained. And when he says this vastly, and you think, oh. And then he quotes three lines from Gregory Nazianzen, a late 4th century Cappadocian church father. Cappadocia, modern Turkey. And the, the lines that Calvin quotes come from... Um, Gregory's Baptismal Oration 40, section 41. And Gregory writes, he's preparing a young man for baptism. So how do you prepare a young man for baptism? This is what Gregory says. He says to the young man, when I think of the three, I must think of the one. But when I think of the one, I must think of the three. And when I do, my mind is overwhelmed my heart bursts, I must turn aside and worship. When did the thought of the Holy Trinity last overwhelm you and cause you to turn aside and worship? That's what Calvin says vastly delights me. And when you read that whole baptismal oration, you can well, if you've got the post and anti-Nicene Fathers, you can get it there, but get it on the internet. 
takes about five minutes to read. You think, that's what these people were talking to prospective candidates for baptism about? He was saying, behold your God. This is not apropos of anything, but one of the things that strikes me about the early hymnology of the first five centuries is that I don't think I've ever come across one hymn of the first five centuries that isn't overtly Trinitarian. I haven't found one hymn that's just about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Father. We seem to have lost that. The point of all that is to say that Satan's ultimate goal is not your disgrace. That's a byproduct. He wants to bring disgrace to the Lord Jesus. He wants people to think ill of the holy triune God. That's why when temptation comes calling, we need to have well-furnished minds and hearts and to say, could I do such a thing and sin against God? And you know where that's from, Genesis 39. Joseph's been abandoned, sold into slavery. Life must have just seemed unimaginably bleak for him. And then things begin to turn around and he becomes a servant in the household of an important man. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, seeks to seduce him. And you could imagine the voices. Joseph sees life while you can. Life has been bleak and bad and God has abandoned you. Your family have sold you into slavery. Joseph, life is short. Make the best of it while you can. And here is this young man. And he said, think of all he's been through. And he says, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? Number five, temptation is always well planned and methodical. We don't have time to unpack that. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he speaks there, he writes there of a word that accurately sums up what the devil is about. He speaks of the methodia, the methods of the devil. The devil doesn't act casually. He has method in his madness. Your enemy, the devil, as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, is always looking for someone to devour. He's He's planning at this moment how best he can entrap you and entrap me. You can be sure of that. How to bring dishonor to the Savior through your life and mine. We have an enemy who is out to get us. Albeit, we are pawns in his game. He is out in his nefariousness and in his madness, in his serpentine madness to get at the Lord Jesus Christ. But then sixthly this, just very briefly, temptation, no matter how powerful and pressing, can be resisted. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has come to you that is not common to man, but God will provide a way of escape. Our problem is that we don't either wait for the Lord to provide a way of escape or we don't seize the way of escape he provides. 
And the great way of escape is found in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who enabled the Lord Jesus Christ to refuse temptation. We have an indwelling helper. The Holy Spirit's called in John 14, 15, and 16. He's called the helper. The helper, the one who comes alongside us to stand with us and to say we can do it together. Christians are pneumatic believers. We believe, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's why we should be creedal Christians and I don't know what you do here week in, week out, so I can say this. We, we should be reciting the creeds together. Apostles' Creed, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan. And right at the heart, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's Reformed Christianity. There's a wonderful example of that at the Westminster Assembly. One of the Erastians, one of the men who wanted the state to be vitally involved in the life of the church, gave this very profound address on um, how and why the state should be intimately involved in the life of the church. And there was silence. And a number of the divines at the assembly had noticed one of the Scottish, there were six Scottish commissioners. They were non-voting because they owed no allegiance to an English parliament but to a Scottish general assembly. So they wouldn't vote, but they had profound influence. And they noticed one of the Scots writing all the way through this address And they said to him, George, stand up and defend the cause of Jesus Christ. And George Gillespie was 24. And he stood up. And he gave this remarkable address. And the Erastian at the end of it turned to someone and said, that young man has destroyed my whole life's work. So at the end of the debate, Gillespie's friends, who had seen him writing, wanted to know what he had been writing in his notes. And all the way through, page after page, they found the same three Latin words. Da lucem domine. Da lucem domine. Da lucem domine. That's what it's only... Give light, O Lord. Give light, O Lord. He was saying, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me. And the Holy Spirit has come to help us. He's come to help us. But one very last thing. My children once said to me that I said finally seven times, but I always, <laughs> this is my seventh point. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Ian, well and good. But what about me? Temptation has overtaken me. It's ensnared me. It's captured me. What about me? Well, let me say but two things. The Bible tells me that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from every sin. I don't know your sin, you don't know mine. I don't know how dark your sin may be. But the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wash you clean. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I've always found it deeply moving that when Moses 
prayed, Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. The Lord causes all his goodness. Notice that. The glory, goodness of God's God's glory is his goodness. His goodness passes before Moses. Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. And what does the Lord say as he passes by Moses in this remarkable theophany? Isn't it great to be unembarrassed supernaturalists? You want to know me, Moses? You want to know me? Understand this. The Lord, the Lord. What's the first thing God says? Just you think. You know the passage, hopefully. What's the first thing he says? You want to know me? Know this. The Lord, the Lord, rich in mercy. What a great thing. Holy, pure, unspotted, just and righteous, absolutely. What's the first thing he says? Rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. What the Spirit first produced in Christ, He comes to reproduce in the people of Christ. Temptation will never leave us till we breathe our last breath. But by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. May God bless to us his word. Amen. Well, we sing as we close our service this evening, soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on and we'll stand to sing.